Hello and welcome to Architecture, Design, and Photography. Today, we are speaking with Jess Givens. He is the president and co-founder of Given Design Group, a California-based firm specializing in healthcare architecture. After a long career in residential and commercial architecture, Given founded Given Design Group with his wife, Kisha or Keisha, I'm not sure, in 2005 and began focusing exclusively on architectural projects in the healthcare and medical fields. I'm interested to talk to Jess Given today because I've spent a little bit of time in California and been around the healthcare industry out there in Loma Linda a lot, and I bet you he knows something about it. But aside from that, someone who's gone into architecture and chosen to specifically focus on something and has been able to achieve that should be interesting to hear about. So give it up for Jess Given. Jess Given, welcome to Architecture, Design, and Photography. How are you doing today? Excellent. Glad to be All here. All right, so, so where are you at in California right now? We're in Orange County in the city of Orange. All right, and you're recovering from the hurricane. <laughs> what a hurricane. <laughs> you, you West Coasters and your weather, you guys get fire and, and uh, avalanches and mudslides, but we get, we get the stuff that you just got. So, yeah. You get it in real doses. In real doses. <laughs> Well, it, it's interesting. Part of my part of my interest in talking with you is I spend a fair amount of time in California in the winter, um, just because it's nice to get out of Maine for a little bit, and I have a, a large surfing habit that is nice to be able to uh, exercise. That's awesome. In California, so we go up to Ventura for a bit, but um, and you can I do saw, snowboarding if you hit hit the winter months. I don't want to see fun. snow. I don't want to see snow. We <laughs> snowboard okay. here before we leave, but other than that, no. But um, have you worked in Loma Linda at all? Uh, we there was a, a probably a skilled nursing facility that we did there. Yeah, is okay. that where you say? Well, uh, I have a friend that lives in Grand Terrace, and he's a big um, medical photographer. As far as like the marketing for the advertise the uh, the marketing for the medical systems. So I've worked with him occasionally in some of Loma Linda's places. Actually, we shut down a proton accelerator once accidentally, but it wasn't our fault. We, uh, we asked where to plug in, and they told us everywhere we could plug in our lights. And all of a sudden, we heard kind of a... And we went out wow. into the hallway, and all these middle-aged men were walking out of their treatment rooms, and we were like, oh, no. Turns out we plugged in and found a weakness in their system. It didn't ruin anything, but yeah, it, we kind of helped them out long term. But it was definitely a moment. But you, you yeah. definitely helped them out long term. Those long-term. lessons learned are, are so valuable, especially we're about to engage in healthcare and hospital discussions, and that is the tip of the spear is is uh, having redundancy and uh, backup systems. Well, that's that's the other thing. Uh, the medical facility at Loma Linda is a pretty pretty cutting edge uh, well-to-do big known medical facility and I know they had to just redo a whole new building uh, because I think of seismic requirements that's correct yeah they they underwent a huge huge renovation yeah yeah and so they have a huge new building there that uh, my friend was he does a lot of photography through there and their architecture photography sometimes as well so I have a lot of connection there, but I also know with California, there's just a huge amount of regulations just to the leanings of the state. It just happens that you end up with a lot of bureaucratic regulations sometimes, which isn't always a bad thing, isn't always a good thing either. 
But I know there's probably a lot of red tape to go through, especially in a place that has such seismic fire and everything else requirements, I imagine. So. That's correct. The regulations are changing. Uh, so the codes change every three years in California and the regulations are constantly trying to keep up with the innovations because there's technology that's advancing so much faster than the codes are. And, and mm -hmm. you'd think every three years you'd capture that stuff, but it's uh, that, that's usually the biggest challenge. So for example, uh, for example, uh, there was that uh, incident that happened in Massachusetts back in 2012 with the uh, compounding uh, pharmacy. Mm -hmm. uh, I won't name it, but it uh, the lessons learned there were that some of the compounding practices that were par for the course were far from safe, and so people were dying, and they weren't even, they were dying of meningitis. They didn't even know where they're contracting it from, and so the board of pharmacy finally uh, stepped in and said, "Hey, hang on." And this is national, by the way, so this goes coast to coast. And they said, no, we're going to re redo all of the regulations for the Board of Pharma for any pharmaceutical. And so if any hospital that has over 100 patients is required in California to have a pharmacy on the premises because you're taking care of those patients. So uh -huh. those, that means in California has roughly 3,000 hospitals. And so that means there's 3,000 pharmacies that need to be in lockstep with these new regulations. And they're completely different then. So, you know, you're building, you have your air handlers and you share all your air, not with a pharmacy. That's, that's your cleanest environment in your entire building. And so they needed to have an entirely independent systems. Oh, wow. And that was, that was implemented, uh, enforced in 2016. So we suddenly had 20 pharmacies that were in the middle of renovating oh, uh, wow. to get okay. them into up to speed. But that's, that's an example of how how regulations affect design and in healthcare and how those regulations are a good thing because you know having an utterly sterile environment is ultimately what you want you're going in most people get staph infections in hospitals and most people uh, you know especially if you're already in a weakened condition mm. you can you're subject to all of that uh, all of those um, uh, Contaminations, and so I'll give you another example of how how strictly into, uh, sterile these environments are. So when you when you finish a pharmacy, they uh, they take a swab. They have an inspection unit that goes in. The Board of Pharmacy, BOP has an inspection unit. Every state has their own. So uh, the inspection unit goes into the space before anybody's able to use this brand new pharmacy. So the hospital just spent a million plus, or two million plus on this pharmacy. You can't use it. It looks brand new and everything's ready to use. They go in there and they swab their uh, little, um, you know, they take samples all over the space. They take, it's like a white glove treatment. They wipe all the different corners. They put it on a Petri dish. They let it incubate for two weeks. And if anything grows, you've passed, you failed and you got to start all over again. Wow. So that's, and, and compare that to like an OR, an operating room. An operating room is in comparison, an utterly filthy environment because you're bringing in a patient that just to say they're having hip replacement or they have gunshot wound or they have some trauma that they're being treated mm -hmm. and you open them up, people themselves, even the doctors themselves are constantly shedding. You're, you're shedding stuff off of you in, in, right. in, the, in the trillions, constant little microscopic stuff. In a pharmacy, you're garbed up twice. You have stuff over your eyes, you have stuff over your body, there's stuff over your boots. And when you cross that line of demarcation in a pharmacy, you gotta throw all those garbings away and put brand new garbings on every wow. single time. And so you can imagine that's really tedious, really expensive, and it slows down the back and forth of you know these guys, these technicians working within a pharmacy. 
So it so the, the secret sauce there is to create a pharmacy that meets all the air requirements, is completely and utterly sterile, and has pass-through windows everywhere. So you, those technicians don't have to keep leaving to give product to the staff outside the pharmacy. So you have compounding yeah. areas with, within a pharmacy. So that, that's what we had to do 20 times over just to get, and those were just the facilities we were working with. And pass-through so windows are like two doors on a, like open air, it up, put an, it in, close it, they open it, take it out. They have an, like, an airlock, <laughs> yep. Yep, 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 yeah. exactly. That's the international symbol for airlock, by the way. <laughs> exactly. So, wow, okay, so the, there's been a huge um, increase in need and uh, business in the design community within California, specifically just for pharmacies within hospitals. Well, that's yeah, actually the whole, that's, that's nationwide. So the Board of oh, Pharmacy okay. is, a, is, a, is regulated on the federal level, kind of right. like a C CMS, uh, Center of Medicaid and Medicare. Okay. That is that is also a you know that's in D.C. So they have their buildings in D.C. and they send out their troops in various forms to each state. And those are called uh, in in California we call them the Joint Commission (TJC). So they they come in and they inspect your buildings to make sure they're in lockstep with all the regulations. And because CMS is the one that reimburses these hospitals, and CMS says, "Hey, look, we're not going to reimburse you if you're not acting like a responsible hospital." And some of them aren't. Some of them are. Uh, subpar you wouldn't take your cat to so you you want to know which ones are really really safe for you taking your for the concerned consumer how do you identify a good hospital and uh maybe i'm going to get an infection here it's a great question so one of the things that um the state regulators have implemented and it's actually due january this uh january 24 is there has to be notices posted like plaques posted in the public waiting areas so that paramedics, patients, uh, uh, waiting uh, family members, they can see for themselves what the, what the safety level is for that particular hospital. It's almost like how LEED, you remember LEED, uh, everybody yep. was trying to get LEED yep. certified, silver, blue, I mean, uh, gold and bronze. So those are the classifications for environmental, uh, I guess maybe a, a carbon free footprint or something like that. Right. So the higher you went, the more environmentally safe you were or the less impact you had on the planet. So right. it, those plaques, you see those plaques in public buildings everywhere. This is something similar to that. And it basically, uh, the state of California says, hey, look, it's the public's right to know what your safety level is. So they mm -hmm. do. And that's being enforced in January. And that's basically like a health inspection for a restaurant that's posted. Essentially, yeah. It, 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 it addressed. So the main thing about California, really the whole West Coast, is the. Um, well, I need to back up for a second, if you don't mind. Oh, we got to go way back to how you even like got interested in architecture. We just got <laughs> okay. on this like interesting path here, but. <laughs> okay. Well, so if I back up for a second, remember in February there was a massive. Uh, I think it was a six point eight earthquake in Turkey. Yes. Okay, forty-seven thousand people died in that earthquake. Turkey and Syria, was it, that, that uh, fault line matches almost identically to the San Andreas Fault. Ugh. It looks, you, when you overlay them, they are the exact same slip fault, they are mm -hmm. the exact length size fault, and they are exact same magnitude, and they, they have the same occurrences of uh, seismic activity. Mm -hmm. And so it's not a matter of if, but when. And so the state said, hey, look, um, in 1971, um, 40 people were killed in an earthquake. It was called the Silmar earthquake. 
And so there was a, the state got together and said, hey, look, we need to make our buildings. Our, and there was our hospitals. That was a hospital that collapsed and killed 47 people in that hospital. So the, the state got together and said, hey, look, we need to make our hospital stronger. If there's one building you want standing after an earthquake, it's your hospital. So they passed that act and they made the buildings structural to, to withstand an 8.0. That was the goal. Then the 1994 earthquake hit Northridge. And all the stuff that's in the hospital is what killed probably another 60 or 57 people or something like that. It was another, how, it was another round so? of people. And uh, so all the stuff that's in the hospital, I'm talking about your T-bar ceilings, all your large uh, refrigerators, uh, hoods. Um, and hospitals are filled with equipment. There's, I mean, so there's the so much building equipment. was fine, but it just the, shook all the junk in it, and that killed ex- people? Exactly. That's what happened. Whoa. So okay. the, So say, for example you're in the middle of a surgery and an earthquake hits because they don't ever warn you. They just, boom, they just hit. In the middle of a surgery, you're in the middle of uh, uh, labor and delivery and uh, that happens. Now, the the pipes over your head, there's chiller lines, there's sprinkler lines, there's waste lines, they break and now all that stuff comes down on you and all the ceiling comes down on you, all those large ducts and all those, everything, that that stuff became um, problematic. And so they passed the... Senate bill 1953, it's called SB 1953 in California. And that was saying, hey, look, not just the building, but actually all the stuff in the building all needs to be anchored. So, which is really unique to California. Uh, Oregon has something very similar. Uh, California is called Oshpod. And then it just recently became HGI. And I, could, I can explain that in a second. But their whole goal, their entire purpose in life is to make sure you could basically take a hospital and tip it upside down and all the parts and pieces stay together. And that is so that when the rest of the world is experiencing this, you know, there's fires, all the water lines break, all the uh, gas fuel lines break, the hospital has to be the one beacon that can still take care of trauma patients. And so that's what, uh, I don't know, I think I went off on a tangent, but that's what that was. Well, no, that's why I think, um, well, I'll leave that information off the table, but... Uh, Loma Linda put a huge amount of money into their new right. building, I guess, and uh, it was it was a it was not an easy thing to do, uh, but it seems like that it's served them well thus far. But yeah, big, brand new, really nice, they, really safe building. And and because the state recognized seismic putting putting uh, seismically structurally uh, making your building meet the calculations to withstand an 8.0 earthquake, which is really, really rare. So that's like maybe, that's like the 800 year earthquake. The 5.0s, the 6.0s, those happen probably every 30 years. But the the, the heavy, the big ones, the ones that I'm talking about in Turkey, that was a 7.8 or something like that. It was really, Mm -hmm. really large, it was almost an eight. And every number, by the way, is four times the previous number. So it's crazy. a a two is four times as big as a one. And they keep uh, exponentially growing. But- What was Northridge? um, it was a 6.7, I think. That's all. Yeah. Wow. And yeah. all that highway damage. And I saw you did a lot of work in Northridge on your website, it looks like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, so another thing, another side note in California is for most architects, in, in fact, almost any architect outside of California, you're going to be doing car dealerships and schools and colleges and golf courses and country clubs and uh, mixed use apartment complexes and residential houses. 
and uh, those all those projects get submitted to your local jurisdiction. It's called AHJ, the Authority Having Jurisdiction. So that means if you're in the city of Silmar, you'll submit your plan to the building department at Silmar. Right. In California, they said, look, this is such a specialized uh, uh, trade, a specialized task that we want our architects to every project that happens in a hospital in California has to go through a design professional record. And that's almost about 99% an architect. They call it a DPOR, but nobody else wants to take that role on. It's a lot of paperwork, it's a lot of processing, but in our experience, we actually prefer it. We know, because we know, that, so there's a there's a there's an office, uh, HKI has an office in LA and there's another office in Sacramento and there's one in San Diego. So those are the three primary offices and you're, all you're dealing with is maybe 40 or 50 people in each group. And over 20 years, we know them all. And so we know what their plan check remarks are gonna be. We know what they're looking for. And so all of our engineers and ourselves can take that, that content and package it and upload it to the state website. They will review it and then we get our plans approved. It's mm -hmm. a really, really different process for an architect doing a residence, say in Newport Beach. They, they would locate, they would just submit it to the Newport Beach building department. And right. you don't know in that case who you're dealing with because those, those trade, they, they sometimes like say for example, we did a project in Duarte. It was um, it was a clinic. So clinics, skilled nursing facilities, and hospitals all go to the state. Anything that has patients that are have overnight stays goes to the state of California. That's each mm, guy. Okay. Anything less than that is a clinic because you go in, you see the doctor, you leave, and then they shut the doors, they close the lights off at six, seven, eight o'clock at night, and they're done. Right. So there's no overnight stays. Really, what HK is concerned about is uh, non-ambulatory patients being able to evacuate the building in in the case of an emergency. So right. that's what that's what uh, is their biggest concern. So they said, okay, look, you need an architect that understands this process. It's complex. We get it, but we need an architect to package all that information and then submit it to the state. We love it because we know all the state players, and we said we can work with them directly. And you know, it, I, they can text me or call me, and they can say, "Hey, look, I got your plans. I have a question about this," and so I just get it. And they said, "Hey, just change that detail. We'll slip sheet it in, and we can approve your plans." So there's, it's a, it's a, uh, it's our secret sauce in working with the state is that uh, we, we not only embrace them but we encourage clients to bring them in early and say, hey, look, they're not an adversary like most building departments are. You're like, oh man, I didn't get my plans approved. They're the opposite. You invite them early. I just gave a seminar, I think a couple months ago, and uh, the Santa Clara County had asked me to give a presentation on what it is to, to, be, to work with HKI. And I said, oh, yeah, happy to do it. I said, I'll, I'll raise you one. I'll have a couple of HKI, uh, some of the top, uh, you know, People at HK jump on the call and we'll do it. We'll do a, a joint uh, presentation, and so they do that. They 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 jump in and they're really the takeaway was let's all uh, share what you want to do early on and we'll work with you. We get it. Mm -hmm. Your hospitals. We we all care about what we do. We want right. these environments to be safe, and so that's really the uh, that's kind of the premise of us working as a collaborative team with HK and the state and and certainly the course. You have a hospital that calls you up and says, my CT scan went down. And um, I, I now have a trailer. I'm paying 30 grand a month to have a, a temporary CT scan sitting outside in the driveway. 
And if it's raining, I got to bring patients out there on a gurney and it's, you know what I mean? It's not ideal. You want, so it, it always becomes a rush, rush, rush. Everything in right. hospital is really quick. So, um, do you find that you work primarily as the architect of record in these situations, uh, uh, in that relationship? In every can scenario. You, it, oh, can you, can you explain how that relationship works? Because there'll be an architect of record and then there'll be an architect. And I've always worked around that as an architectural photographer where one will hire me more than the other, or I'm, I'm, I'm always curious what, what the real idea of that relationship is and why. That's a really good question. So I'll explain kind of the difference in how we work and how a typical, say, a Gensler or a Perkins & Will or an SOM right. or large, large architectural firms that, you know, they're all over the place. They're, they have offices all over the world. The issue with them is that they are building high rises. They're building parking structures. They're building universities and football stadiums and things like that. And they have one small group that might focus on healthcare. And that small group, as you know, in any firm, you, you always got staff rotating. The employees are moving around. So you, you, my, the biggest complaint that I hear from hospitals up and down the coast, I mean, up and down California, is that we hire these firms because they're big house firms and they should, they have the capacity to take these projects on. But they, uh, we wind up getting a job captain. So we wind up getting a project architect or somebody that's somewhere down lower in the wrong, at least somebody who's, can take your information, but is not able to give you a decision right there and then. So if you meet with a project manager, you say, hey, look, I want to add a second award. Does that, is that possible? Or am I going to suddenly now have to add three janitorial closets, a, you know, staff lounge and all these kind of things because of the, you know what I mean? Because of these things. Um, codes, basically, it's all driven by codes. So the difference in how we provide our services is that we we really work as a tight ship, all rowing in the same direction. So every single person in our office is uh, working towards, um, you're communicating with H guys. So you have that whole dialogue going on, plans going back and forth. A lot of paperwork, which I can't get into right now, because <laughs> it'll, it'll bury you. But uh, so there's that whole, we have, we have staff that that's all they do. They manage that. And then we have project managers that manage the project, the construction, the RFIs and the submittals and all that. And then we have, uh, uh, of course, the, uh, all the accounts part. And then we have uh, uh, project coordinators and uh, job captains that are also, the drafters, of course, doing Revit or AutoCAD drawings based on what they want. But the, the main thing is that um, they're getting, the, the facility is getting um, uh, direct contact with all of us. So, those project managers as a team, they can say, oh, by the way, was this project ever uploaded? They can contact directly to, they can directly uh, reach out to our project coordinator because they know that that's, uh, how do I describe this better? Uh, it's kind of like, there's so many different uh, specialties and each of us ma makes ourselves available so that if my question, if their question is related to finance, they can go out directly contact. They don't have to go around. If they have a, a code question, they can go to a project manager, they can contact me directly. So we make ourselves available um, because our biggest, uh, our biggest concern or our biggest emphasis, I should say, is in being able to provide immediate services. Everything in a hospital is urgent. There's, there's almost nothing that, uh, oh yeah, we'll have, in 10 years we want to add a new tower. 
So that's, you know, space planning, some modeling and stuff. What we do is a lot of architectural firms, I'm gonna get back to what we do in a second. A lot of architectural firms, they like to, like the big house firms, they like to jump in and do the new tower. Or they like to do the new ground up uh, addition to, I don't know if you know Newport, Hogue is the hospital down there. And they just built a new tower. There's a new one, there's two more. Uh, City of Hope built one in Irvine. And I think uh, Saddleback and Hogue also built one in Irvine. So they're creating a medical center in the south of Orange County. Right. And so those big firms, they want those juicy jobs. The problem is that hospitals have, there's, a, there's many more needs than just building a new tower. There's, there's emergencies, there's uh, wastelines break. I, I, these, these are all, I could go on and on about stories about actual things that have occurred where like uh, two days ago, White Memorial just lost all their power. Ooh, my um, friend works for White Memorial occasionally. You'll, you'll check it out, it was on the news. They had to evacuate all the patients from White. And so they call, they'll call up at midnight and say, hey, look, we need a team to put together an emergency permit, reach out to HKI, tell them we need to, uh, we need to do whatever we can do to get our uh, system back up and running. Hmm. So that is, we're available 24 seven and they know that. And a lot of that work, a lot of what our focus is, is keeping, is really collaborating with the hospital team itself. So they know they can rely on us for whatever they need. It's not just okay. the big juicy projects is my point. So it seems like the, the Gensler types come in with the, almost like the shell of the building. And then they hire a specialist like you guys to come in and actually fill it out and make it work and make sure the codes are matching and a little bit more of that relationship. Is that? Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like, so for example, we're working at uh, Martin Luther King community hospital. It's in South central and uh, a large architectural firm uh, designed a six story tower for them. And a lot of the spaces that when they designed them were all shell spaces. They were, in other words, we don't know what it's going to be yet, but we know that mm -hmm. it can be developed. So uh, then the facility, they move on and the facility, we develop a relationship. We've been working with that facility since about 2017. And so we, they have, I mean, talk about an underserved community that needs an enormous amount of uh, assistance. Um, they'll reach out. We partnered with them and we said, hey, look, we're not here just to be, you know, to, to grab all your big projects. Uh, we're here to be your, to collaborate with you and to be your partner. So, you know, nothing's too small. If you need your exhaust fan replaced in your, or your water softener or hospitals are, are like, they're like battleships. They're just, they're filled with equipment and stuff. It's all integrated. It's, it's, it's our submarine. Maybe that's more a better analogy, but uh, so one of those systems goes down and we go in there and because time and time again, we're immediate, we can take care of the issue that they start to rely on us and they go, you know what, hey, look, you guys are doing such a great job. Can you do this? And so our projects are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Right. So that's kind of right. how our, our growth has been happening. But at the same time, our, our model, our business model is no project is too small. If it's a need, we'll take care of it and right. we'll just address it. In other words, we'll take your problem off your shoulders, we'll take care of it, and before you know it, it'll be resolved. And that's, that's ideal for a project manager or, or a, facility director that they're trying to manage the whole hospital, they're managing unions, they're managing nursing staff, they're managing all kinds of stuff. And, and that losing your water softener system that's providing humidity to say your, uh, your ORs or your pack, 
I don't know if I start using too many uh, acronyms like a PACU. Well, as my mom's a nurse and I've worked in the medical area ish uh, through photography and everything else. So I, I, I catch a lot of them, but uh, okay. All right. Some just of them stop go me. Overhead, <laughs> yeah. It's fascinating. Um, I'll tell you um, the thing that uh, is really fun for us as well is uh, going in there into a space and doing the whole thing in a 3D model, and then we'll turn that into an animation. And that gives, because doctors are designed to look at x-rays or designed to look at charts or designed to, they're not designed to look at plants. I've had a doctor ask me, they're looking at a dimension line and they're saying, well, what is this thing right here? And I said, that's just a dimension line. <laughs> that won't be, in the, won't be on the floor. So in other words- Why, why I, is this in the plan? It's <laughs> yeah, just a dimension, it was, it's okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, we provide these, uh, this kind of, these kind of animated fly-throughs and the doctors look at it and they love it. They just get all excited. They're like, Oh man, when can we get, when can we get it done? <laughs> so that's, yeah. I, that's I found a, I've had an interesting epiphany with doctors. They are the most, uh, focused on a hobby of professionals that I've ever met because I think they have such an intense work life and such a commitment towards building that life that right. when they get there and they have any time at all, they're just, they, they recreate like nobody's business. And so exactly. they have this like 100% on, 100% off. It is an extreme sport. So, Talk to any of the nursing staff yeah. and it, it is phenomenal. Yeah. What the, the amount of energy they put into it, you know, these you yeah. know, 80, 80 hour weeks, it's just like, I mean, that's not uncommon. So I, I, I would like to hear how you came to architecture to begin with, and then your experience practicing as a residential architect and then the reason and interest uh, that moved you from residential to medical, and then kind of um, an encapsulation of what you really enjoy doing. Because I found this to be most uh, CEOs of firms or founders of firms have a desire to not just create beautiful spaces, but also to create business models that work over time. So how'd you get into architecture? So the funny thing is, um, my stepdad was uh, used to be a draftsman in the '60s. Remember mm -hmm. those those pictures you see of all those guys in the big open bullpen, and they're all wearing white shirts and black oh, ties, I, leaning I, I over. I learned there. architecture drafting myself. I took drafting classes in high school, and then I went to architecture right. school, and they made you do all the drafting first, and then the last couple two years we were more so on the computer. But right, it was through him. Uh, we were uh, building something. This is in Kansas, so I was about, you know, I, mean, I, I went to Kansas uh, briefly from about 1973 to maybe kind of 1980. But uh, so some formative years there. Uh, by the time I was 12, a little 1976, I think, um, we needed, uh, we were raising chickens on our, on our farm and he wanted, uh, and I'd seen him drawing plans and uh, we'd, he said, hey, and I wanted to do it. He knew I wanted to get into it. And he goes, why don't you draw up the plans for the chicken house? And then why don't you do your own lumber takeoff on it? And then why don't you build it from your own plans? And then you'll see what where you're missing, what information you're missing to see when you draw it all up. Did you, did you describe what the, all the different parts and pieces were? And uh, it's to this day, it's still standing. I was That's 12 years old, 1976, I think, yeah. Yeah, see, I've realized there's been points in my life where I've had I've taken a swing like that and then it hit and the attempt and the success set up a trajectory for life. 
and even at 12, that that kind of thing really has an effect on people. And so I, that's interesting to hear. You kind of have a founding story for your spark uh, that you're still, you know, burning from from this day. I, I also went to art school, so I knew that see, for me, architecture is really the kind of it is the focal point of math, art, construction. I love construction. It's, I love to be a part of watching the whole building go up. It's 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 exciting. From from clearing the site, digging the foundations, pouring the concrete, pouring the slab, framing up the walls, and uh, so uh, he was also a contractor. So I wound up, you know, through all the years and summers and spending my time, you know, learning what all the different the nomenclature of building assemblies are, and right. uh, you know, swinging a hammer, putting up drywall, did all of it. So it was uh, to me, it was a very natural uh, um, next step to take. And in fact, in fact, I. Took, I, I went to college late. I, was, I think I was 23 or 24. Most kids were 18. And I was, uh, I, had, I wanted to uh, get the experience of being a site supervisor, managing a project. This was now in Beverly Hills. The construction company was out there and I was uh, managing this, this large house for this client. And um, the reason I, I chose to do that and not go directly into college was because I knew if I never had that experience of, of really building a whole house from scratch myself, mm. by the time I got my degree, I was going to go work for an architectural firm, then I would never look back. I would never have that opportunity. And for me, drawing a line on paper represents a big glue lamb or represents a beam that takes guys to lift up with a crane or on ladders. And so it was like, it, I, I never wanted this kind of abstract version of architecture. I always wanted it to be an offshoot of a very, in fact, my professors in college were saying uh, at one point they wanted us to, in one of the studio classes, wanted us to design a building based on a grasshopper. I said, okay, that's obviously never going to happen. And one kid had this huge cantilever going on. I said, do you realize how much concrete would be in the side of the cliff to put support that cantilever? And my professor came to me and said, Jess, this is an exercise. You should have fun with this. <laughs> this is not, we're not really building these. Relax. So <laughs> yeah, relax. <laughs> yeah, yeah so. well, I, I always appreciated projects in architecture school that had more of a realistic bent to them because it required more creativity rather than limitless, do whatever you want. Do whatever you want to me is not creativity. That's the only uh, resistor at that point is human perception and nothing outside of it really if, if that's right. all you're doing which if it's an exercise in, in simple artistic expression yeah fine and good but yeah that, that idea in architecture school to me that there were no limitations no budget no real restraining program like right. I, I've, I always wanted like that, that you know like the Cindy Crawford mole like no one wants a mole on their face but somehow they made it work mm -hmm. like that's the thing I, I I need a conflict to resolve and if it's pure make-believe eh, it doesn't it doesn't seem like I've accomplished much that that is you hit the nail on the head that is the exact that's that's the the engine that drives architects problem solution and yeah. whether it's you have seismic issues and you come up with a solution or whether you have snow loads in, in uh, Arrowhead or Big Bear or up in the mountain somewhere, you, you pointed roofs versus flat roofs because you don't want to carry 16 tons of snow. So you wanted all the shed off. So I mean, 
If you look at vernacular architecture, which I'm sure you're very familiar with since you're an architectural photographer, you can look at an igloo versus a grass hut. And, and they're right. all responses to their environments, which is really basically problem solution. Right. So what was it like being a residential architect uh, designing uh, homes for celebrities? That's got to be a bit of a head trip at some point. It was. Um, so... And how did you after, get to that position? Yeah, let me. So after I graduated, I had done some intern work, and I'd worked at a Philip Jansen Group in New York City, and uh, I was, I don't, know, early twenties, I guess, by the time I was working there. And uh, New York, such great energy. It's like you're coming over the George Washington Bridge, you're, you can feel the energy just buzzing. Your molecules immediately start to resonate. It just, it's a city that has so much energy to it that when you're a young person, that's exciting. All you wanna do yeah. is stay up all night, you wanna go party, you wanna you know, go to restaurants. And so I was doing that for a couple of years and I just completely burned out. I just like, I need a break. I need to get away from this. And so oddly, I wound up working, in, I, I took a job in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Um, I have this affinity. I love art. And so I wanted to go somewhere where I could satisfy that part of my soul. Building is one thing, but I actually want to just paint. I want to have fun. And so I wanted to go to Santa Fe, New Mexico. And uh, it was the flipped coin opposite of it. It was very mellow, mm -hmm. gorgeous. The aspens are bright yellow. When in the fall, their trunks are white. Everything shimmers. It's just, it, you feel like you're in a magical land. And uh, because you're at 7,000 feet, you're looking through far, far less atmosphere. The sky is just a deep cobalt, which is why all the artists tend to go there because they get these really rich colors. Mm. And you imagine a deep cobalt blue sky with yellow shimmering aspens covering the Sangre de Cristo Mountains. It's, it's gorgeous. Um, mm. So I worked there for a commercial firm and we did a lot of uh, lodges, like uh, resorts. That was, we did, I think we did, a, my, my main biggest project I did from ground up was a, it was a Native American, uh, cultural center just was truly one of the funnest projects we ever did. It was this big kind of spiral, all stones and had, it had paid a lot of homage to all of the native tribes that lived around and uh, neighbored. Santa Fe is a landlocked city. It can't grow. It also has a very strict regulations. There's no franchises. So you won't find a Texaco or a 7-Eleven or anything yeah. within Santa Fe. Well, Santa Fe below. So it's landlocked on three sides on that fourth side. It just kept growing down further, and that's where all the franchises are. So you can right. get there, but in the sand, it, it's still cowboy town if you go there. It's a lot of art community and stuff like that. Huh. I spent a couple of years there, and it was hiking. I was healthy. <laughs> um, friends of mine were living in California and said, hey, you got to come out to California. We need you. And they were doing. They were uh, working for a construction company. They had their own company. And they said, uh, we, could, we could hook you up with so many movie stars your head would spin. I'm like, that sounds fun. And I'm kind of done here. So in 2000, I moved to California and I took a job uh, with an architectural firm that was doing these big celebrity homes. And I, I mean, imagine a Hamptons home on steroids. A Hamptons home is already large. Now you're talking about just big, but all really beautifully, beautifully done. I mean, you would, as a architectural photographer, you would just, your socks would roll up and down just looking at some of these homes, They're just so gorgeous. Uh, out in like the foothills of um, well, Pasadena and that, that area, and then Beverly Hills. And so you get all these old, you get these old style architecture. And then you get, uh, oh, one of the houses I worked on was a lot of fun, uh, was a member of Vincent Price. He was a, like a scary movie actor from, the, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think, the 50s and 60s. So his house had just been 
butchered by some developer in the 80s. It was gauche. I mean, they had like silver walls and black ceilings, and I don't even know what they were thinking. <laughs> I don't know what the, cl the previous client was thinking. So uh, we went in there and just restored the entire thing. We added wings, but we were we the stuff we added the loges, the covered porches, the quatrefoil fountains, and all of the stuff we we did uh, with the little grass patterns going through the concrete. So it looked very much like very respectful of Spanish style architecture in the nineteen twenties, mm -hmm. and but without having little teeny spaces and little teeny windows, which is indicative of the early twenties, we just kind of made everything larger, but still scaled it so it was a human scale. But it, you when you walk into a space, it was like this large beamed ceiling all painted hand painted and then you know hmm. so it, that was a lot of fun we uh did that and i um i um i told the firm when i in 2000 i said my goal is to start my own office but my also my goal is to buy my own house out here in california and uh i can't do either of those i need to i need to two years worth of basically pay stubs to prove to the bank that i can afford a new house and a mortgage i said but I'll give you, I'll knock it out of the park for you. I'll give you the best two years you've ever gotten on. I'll, I'll get your team completely ready so that when I leave, you won't even miss me. And they said, okay, sounds good. And that's what I did. They had now, all, they had how all. How much experience uh, did, did you have at that point that you were able to offer as value? How old? Oh, were I, I, I know construct. Well, at that point I was probably maybe I. 30s? Uh, early 30s maybe like early 30s. okay yeah. so you're perceived as a responsible adult by most everyone at that point so you're not yeah. like an an upstart in your 20s you're you know like maybe a gray hair or two and yeah it, okay it was it was 90s 2000s there was some still some you know electronic music in my head going on and i did have oh, spiked hair right. and parachute pants and things like that so we'll, we'll dismiss all that but yeah no I, I i came with uh what i brought to the table was an extensive knowledge of construction mm -hmm. and uh and uh the design uh and autocad so i forgot yeah. to mention that when i was in college the dean had asked me to teach an autocad course because that was fairly new it was way back when it was c colon backslash dos based mm. software really really cool. clumsy and uh i had uh i i had known that it was the future and i had known that if i don't jump on this train i'll be left behind so i jumped on embraced it wholeheartedly i mean i jumped right into the deep end and at that point um the uh, dean had said hey look i have one of my professors is going to china they have an opportunity can you take their studio class and by the way we have another class opening that uh we would like you to teach autocad so i said yes to both and they said we'll pay you and i said okay well they're they're their job so yeah sure getting paid is great <laughs> yeah. so i brought to the table construction and and uh the whole autocad experience the firm and that so hired you, me you took two years and built up kind of an arm of their business that you knew at two years, I'll be kind of walking away from that, but I will have built something up for you that will go on. Right. Uh, I'll give you an example. Do you know and, what- And you uh, made that as a pitch to them. Yeah, exactly, from day one, yeah. full transparency. I said, I, I just want to let you know. I pitched it to one firm in Beverly Hills and they said, yeah, but by the time you get all of our standards and you really get used to working with us, you're taking off. And I said, yes. And they said, well, okay, thanks, but no thanks. Yeah. But the, the other firm said, you know what? We're so busy right now. Yes. We need you get us get us up to speed. Okay. And uh, they had Micro Center or Micro what was it called Micro Center I think Micro Saw uh, no no what was it called uh, Micro Station. They had Micro okay. Station. They're all Mac based. I don't know if you've ever mm -hmm. seen that, but it's a it's kind of a 
Oh, can I say Macs are really cute. They look like they had, back then. This is in two thousand. Yeah. They the, had the, the green blue bubble ones. green. Yeah. yeah. And, they, and uh, I said, okay, first thing we got to do. And they had 12 stations. I said, first thing you have to do is get rid of all these stations. Give me PCs and give me AutoCAD users. If you do that, I will get you. Oh, out of the the park. people must have hated you though, that were on those Macs. They did. They, they, <laughs> they did. I said, look, either you, I'm not trying to get rid of anybody. You guys are all great right. people. And I actually really enjoyed working with them. But I said, you got to know that this is not the this is not the future for for building it, it might be the future for some things i mean maybe music micro what did i just say it was called micro I keep forgetting the name of it but anyway it was uh they left new team came in all pcs and we were we were like a really well-oiled machine we were getting so much work done it was it was uh staggering right. yeah so we're I, doing... uh, I elected to take a um construction documents course my fifth year of architecture school and i i had proactively adopted archicad instead of autocad yep. mm -hmm. i went archicad because i loved the 3d modeling at the time but exactly. you know, autocad like eventually brought uh revit in and they're i'm probably the standard now i'd imagine you know what AutoCAD did, which was genius. AutoCAD made it, and I don't even know if this is an intentional genius, but this is the inadvertent uh, outcome. They, you could buy a CD. Uh, I think release. I think R14 was the it was finally when they got all the bugs out, and it was all icon based. Mm -hmm. They released R14 on a CD. You could load that on every station, and everybody. See, so you buy it once, and you can load it on twenty stations, hundred stations. Everybody's using the software, and everybody in the mid 90s to the early 2000s just got so used to autocad that autocad said oh wait a second we're losing money here we need to now we need to, it's going to be subscription based and you it's a one-time per user purchase and so it kind of switched but at that point we we're already hooked <laughs> yeah yeah no we, that, we were, i kind of wonder if that wasn't intentional like get them hooked on your smack and yeah, then yeah they're not going yeah, anywhere <laughs> exactly what happened yeah right mm, interesting all right, so uh, my next question here: um, what what was what was the feeling like of working next to uh, you know really well known celebrities? Was did it, did that rub off on you as some kind of confidence that you took other places? Did you learn something from it? Like, boy, I never want to be like celebrities. Was it? What was it? Uh, so. Years ago, in the 80s, I had worked for an interior designer in Los Angeles, in Hollywood. And it was all, I had my Mylar, I had my scroll bar and a parallel bar, and I was doing everything by hand. There was no AutoCAD. Um, a client reached out to me. It, can I name the client or is that not cool? Anyway, a client it's reached cool out to me. Yeah. A client reached out to me and wanted me to uh, do some rend Oh, because I went to art school, I also have this kind of rendering. I love doing renderings. Do you know who uh, Hugh Ferris is? You must. He does Hugh all those Ferris. 1940s uh, renderings of the light from underneath. Very dramatic. Oh, yeah. It looks, yeah, I know it looks those like, renders, They look yeah. like Batman sets. Yep. But so yep. Hugh Ferris is one of my favorite artists, uh, architectural artists. And uh, so I was doing all these hand-drawn renderings. And um, this client had reached out to me and said, hey, can you do some renderings for a house I want to build? And I was 18, maybe something like that. And I said, sure. And uh, I did the renderings. She 
loved them. And then she wanted to hire me. And I said, no, I'm, I'm going to college, but thank you though, I'm very flat. So anyway, I left, go to college, that whole story. Then I go to New York, then I go to Santa Fe. Then I finally back in California, guess what? She found me and she said, can you come work for me? And she said, you're the only person that gets me. And I said, uh, no, um, because I've made a commitment to two years. But after that, yeah, I'd be happy to You'd be my first client. And um, uh, she, she had sent me, uh, she said, she didn't take no as an answer. Because hmm. uh, I said, look, hey, I, I'm, I got commitments. And then so, um, and I also had said, I was young and stupid, so just forgive me my next remark. But I said, look, I, I'm, I know your movies. I know your music, but I'm, it's, I'm not really like, that's not why I would do it. It's, I'm not like, I'm not a big fan of that. I actually said that I'm not a fan of your music or your, or your movies. But if you want to still do something together, when I'm, I'll be done in this month, you know, let's engage. That only she, made them want you more, didn't it? I got two tickets at the Staples Center sent to my house for me and another person to go see her perform at her last performance. And uh, I got to, I felt like I was at the Academy Awards. I had, you know, all these movie stars all around me. And uh, she comes out, belts her songs. And afterwards, um, I wrote her back and I said, it would be an honor. I, I was yeah. floored. I was totally floored. <laughs> so... What do you think it was that connected you with this individual? Like, what, what was it that this individual picked up on that they saw in you that made them say, this is the guy I need to design this? Like, That's a good question. I, I don't know if I can answer that for their, on, on their behalf, but I think uh, partly because, uh, so taking my, so I did residential for, I mean, five or so years in LA and uh, all the experience was the same. Every single one of the clients that I worked with. So I was I, at that point, I, I, so I had left the firm I was working with. I went out on my own and my business partner was licensed. I didn't have my license yet in LA because I was in, in New Mexico and I was still building up, going through the AREs, getting my, passing all my exams. So I partnered with a person in Los Angeles and we did these um, um, projects we were, we had all the same clients and uh so they but they kept asking for me and i my partner started getting a little miffed about that and said how can you they always want you to go to the meetings i'm like i th i said the only thing is i pull out a paper and i draw right live you're looking at something you want this it was draw it up here is that what you want and they're like yeah that's exactly what i want and so for that that ability mm -hmm. bring bring art into architecture in their life in yeah. whatever they want yeah. whether it's modern whether it's you know, I, I had one client that said, I want a very modern house, but I don't want it cold. And so we, we introduced all kinds of wood and made it very modern. And it was, it was beautiful. One, one, actually, one of my, my last huh. residential project I did. Yeah, that's uh, interesting. I, I would have, I, you know, not being exceedingly familiar with you or your work, would have put you more on a technical side and, and, and probably left the artistic side out from the first part of our conversation where you knew so much about all the codes and have positioned yourself in many ways to be the passive for, you know, a more technical side of architecture when it comes to these regulations and everything. But you have this strong side of artistic bent and ability that is servicing that incredibly. It's, it's like developing left half, right half brain. And so, yeah, when you when have that combination, it's, it's potent. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. So mm -hmm. what happened was, and now I'm going to get into the transition part. What happened was, uh, they're fun. These these clients, they're fun, and um, but they're not you, and they're not me, and they're, and they're not, and there are many millions of dollars involved. But they're uh, much more interest. In other words, my entire being was being funneled into one little teeny dot which was their house and it it uh sometimes it, and it's almost like they they live in a plane that's completely different it doesn't have the same reality that you know when i stub yep. my toe it hurts when they stub their toe they, you know, it's a whole different scenario they don't it hurts someone else yeah so yeah it hurts someone exactly so and there started to become this disconnect i actually started yep. to be i guess in my I felt like I didn't have purpose in what I was. I was really good at it. I could pick out all the moldings. I could put a thing together and they were all really thrilled with it. But I, my purpose, it felt hollow. It felt like that was missing. And my wife's, uh, got married in 2003. And my wife, her dad is a builder for hospitals. He builds, uh, he's a contractor for hospitals. And he had asked me to do a design build project with him. And he's talking about Oshpod and this and that. And I'm like, what's Oshpod? So he said, don't worry, I'll, I'll, I'll get you up to speed. And uh, the first project we did was a gamma knife. I don't know if you know what that is. I can huh. explain to you, but it was. Um, that sounds like a really scientific medical tool. Homeland Security is involved. <laughs> so what it looks like is it looks like a large sphere that a patient goes in one end. Different than a, like an MRI, you go right through it. A CT scan, you go through it. It's a big donut. This one is actually a half, it's almost like a whole sphere. It's one area open and the gurney goes right in there. And what it does is it has about 300 different lasers. They all point down into one spot, just like when you're holding a magnifying glass and burning a little leaf. Yeah. That yeah. all these lasers come together and they burn a tumor. They, they through a CT scan, they'll find that you have a tumor. And right. instead of in the old days, up is right, this proton right. beam therapy? No, this is, this is literally like, uh, like it's like, um, geez, I know it's like, it's what the stuff they make dirty bombs out of is like cobalt or some sort mm -hmm. of uranium they use for this, uh, type of machine. But in the old days, you'd actually have to have the top of your skull removed. The doctor would go in there and do the surgery, take the tumor out and put you back and you have three months of recovering somewhere. Right now with this, with this technology, uh, you're able to burn out, you're able to burn out the tumor and, um, it's a, it's an outpatient procedure. I was right. like, wow, that is so, so cool. I, 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 I fell in love from that moment on when I knew what we were doing and we had engineers mm. and structural engineers, we had HKI, we have, so it suddenly, instead of just me and one little elite little person's house, I had a team of engineers and it became this mm. huge aha moment that I really fell in love with. And I was like, you know what? I'm now participating in something that's making people's lives better. And I literally just, I, I, mm. within 24 hours, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And that was the missing ingredient that, I, that was in my life, just working on these individual homes over time. I was like, now I'm affecting people's lives. It's, it, it was phenomenal. And so I, my partnership in LA, I, th that dissolved. I opened a new company with my wife and I opened a given design group architects and, um, it's called GGG healthcare architects. And 
our entire focus, our core values is all geared towards healthcare architecture. And that's the, the entire premise of it. And in every single thing we do, whether it's CT scan or MRI, or even just replacing a water heater in a, you know, when I'm talking water heater, I'm talking like an eight foot diameter by 12 foot high, and there's three of them. <laughs> so they're hospitals like that. Everything is just scaled to such a large scale. But, you know, replacing something like that doesn't seem like it's architect architecture. It seems more like it's mechanical or structural or plumbing engineering. But mm. because HKI in the state of California says, hey, look, anything you do in a hospital, you need to have a design professional, and that's usually an architect. So the more I got into it, the more I was like, man, I'm YouTubing everything. Like, how does it, how does CT scan? What's the difference between a CT and an MRI? How does it, how's like, what's the difference between a cath lab and a hybrid OR? Or, you know, all these different spaces and all these different services that hospitals do. And the more I kept learning, the more I kept realizing there is to learn. And so it became this kind of never-ending process that was for me and for all of us, uh, everybody that works with us today, that is kind of, that's almost like the first question we want to weed out is any new employees, that's almost a requirement. You, you need to have that desire to grow, to learn, mm -hmm. and, and to look into what this stuff is. Don't punch in, punch out. I'm not interested in any employees that want to do that. I, I get that that's a certain, uh, it's a role. The DMV right. is full of them. But I, I, I want employees that actually care. They want to, you know, right, they'll go right. to these conferences just to educate themselves. They'll look up on, on their own time, look up at YouTube. How, what's the difference on a, how does a water softener used in a hospital? You know, so this kind of, uh, how, what is a chiller and how, what's the difference between a, an air handler and a, um, you know, how does the generator support hospital? So all the different equipment and stuff like that. So that was really exciting for me that to, to, to collect a team of, of, of all of us that's that's here now to collect these people and really have us all a care about what we do but b really want to understand what it is our role is and how do we support these hospitals and healthcare facilities hmm. so yeah, that I, that really was a huge huge eye-opener for us i i was not expecting your reasoning and thought process to be that that's interesting that it, you genuinely are, and you know, I'm not trying to slight you as a person. I don't know you, but <laughs> it like you went from working for celebrities, building, you know, relatively budget free things of beauty that like, all right, you think you have talent as an architect here, do whatever you want. Kind of almost situation in doing personal homes for the absurdly wealthy and like, how do you step away from that? You step away from it because you feel that while there is all this wealth and freedom, there's something lost in it that loses a sense of purpose and meaning when you look behind you at, at all the need and in the need and responding to that in what your talent was and is as far as design, but also this side of you that gets into the technical and the code and everything else. You exactly. actually full you you actually found a pull into uh, a a less gloriously beautiful practice of like you know next on the lifestyles and the rich and famous this is here in South Central today but here's people getting help here's people getting facilities that'll be here for decades to come here's infrastructure that's going to serve the under resourced that will have an effect over time. Congratulations you, for being a good person. You know, when you think about it, we're all going to be in a hospital at some point. Uh, in 2011, I had a double bypass. I, I and uh, I can. That. I'm just going to go right <laughs> into that. 
I, I can tell you from personal experience what it's like to be a patient. And I think there's no better way to empathize with the patient than to actually be one yourself. And, and, and mm -hmm. at some point, our parents will be there. We'll be there comforting them. Our, you know, hopefully our children are never there. But, you know, I, I, I'll tell you a story that really, really um, gave me my why. Um, mm. Years ago, I was working at City of Hope, and that's in Duarte. And uh, they, have, uh, they specialize in cancer treatment. And one of their, um, uh, we, so we had to, our job, our, we were called in by our, the, the facility and said, hey, look, all of our uh, pediatric uh, nurse, uh, uh, what do they call them, um, headwalls, that's where the nurses plug in all their devices. You have your, your oxygen, your vacuum, your medical air, nitrogen, all that stuff. They'll plug it all in. They'll have the electrical emergency power. So these, these are called headwalls and they're all designed to be compact so that when the gurney is placed up against the head wall, all those devices can be there to serve that patient. Mm, so okay. often they get antiquated, you know, over time you got to replace them. So our role was, Hey, can you guys can come in and uh, replace all the head walls in the pediatric wing. Okay. So I, I know pediatrics kids and I know city of hope is, is cancer treatment. That's their specialty. I had a team of electrical, structural, mechanical engineers with me, the project manager, and the uh, facility uh, person was there. So we, we go through the double doors into that wing, and we're about to, uh, we go up to the nurse station, we're about to go into that room where that patient, where that patient room is. We're, just take a look at, we were told the pediatric, the whole suite is full, but one of the patients will be leaving soon, and you guys can go see that, because that's a typical head wall, and that'll be true of all the rooms. So we're saying, okay, perfect. We were told the patient was gone. So we scheduled our meeting. We went there. We we're about to go in that room. And the nurse came out like a bulldog and said, stop. Nobody's going anywhere until the patient's ready. And we're like, oh, okay, no problem. And so we're sitting there and um, just waiting. And uh, finally, the nurse comes out and a nine-year-old girl, completely shaved, uh, comes out. And just, I mean, she could have just melted you. She's so cute. And then she looks up at her nurse that's holding her hand. And she said, are they here to make my room pretty? And we just about all cried, <laughs> of course, because, you know, we melted like butter right in the corridor and we said <laughs> exactly what we're here for. And so we went in there and we, we did what we had to do. But, you know, the bottom line is, the bottom line is that we are there to make their room pretty. We are there to support the hospital. We are there to make the nurse's job easier because you know I can get into nurse call systems and telemetry systems. They have a system called hugs, where you, infant hugs, where you put the little band on the infant so that they can't leave a certain area, otherwise the alarms will all start going off. So mm. people can't abduct small infants. So there's, I mean, there's so many different systems within the uh, facility itself. And all of that contributes to making the staff's job easier to be able to monitor these patients and be able to actually give the patients the quality of care that they need and, and certainly deserve when they're going through that. And, and it's stressful. So now you have a mom and a dad coming in, their nine-year-old is uh, going through this and it's, it's heartbreaking. And so you, mm. that stress level is something that you want to alleviate. If we can control that by giving you colors on the wall and like, for example, one of the hospitals, um, in California, as you know, uh, English is not a first language for many of the residents. And so when you put up a sign, hospitals are like big mazes. I don't know. You're intimidated. You're nervous. You're intimidated. You don't know where to go. And nobody's there. To, there's a reception area there, and they can kind of point you there. And you just follow the signs. Okay, so say I'm, I don't know, from some other country. And, and I don't, I'm already, it just, so our approach was, let's, let's do this. Let's 
make uh, radiology, where you get your x-rays and your imaging equipment done, all that services. Let's make all those walls a floral color of, like, say, blue. So we had these big wallpapers that was all blue and we could just say hey follow the blue wallpaper and it'll take you right there or say you wanted to go to the er or the emergency department or something like that we make all those green and it'd be a, like a jungle theme of just green and so that alone with two parents and a sibling going to see one of their children or see their child in this facility it just contributes to just help bring the stress to the level down if you get your heart brush pressure taken in a hospital, it's always going to be higher than taking that home. And that's just because everybody's, <laughs> the anxiety level is a little bit higher in, in that kind of a, it's, it's categorized in the billing code as an institution. It's an I occupancy. I stands for institution. Institution used to be these cold white walls that were shiny. And if you were, had visual yeah. impairments or, you know, you felt like nobody wants to be in an institution. That's, that's scary. It's institutional. Yes. Yes, exactly. That's a word. So, yeah, yeah. So our, our, our contribution to that is really let's try and make this as less scary as possible and let's make her room pretty. You yeah, know? That, it's such a – I was just, let's see, probably two nights ago my wife and I were going to bed and we, we built a house in the last five years and we built it on a, a budget, finished the first floor, eventually moved to the second floor, you know. But our, our bedroom is kind of the last uh, room where, all right, we need to build a headboard with you know side tables and blah, blah, blah. Right now, the, the bedroom is not somewhere where you can be in a stressful part of your day and think, I can't wait to get back and I'm gonna be in that orderly, pretty, you know, calm right. space. There's kind of like not enough place for all my stuff and it's just, it's a bit of a mess. But I know that for each room that we've done that, it affects, when I'm not in that room, it affects my day when I'm in other places thinking about coming back to there because of the care that I put into it and the, the feeling that I have when I'm in those spaces. That gives me more durability, energy, and peace when I'm in other places that aren't as nice. So the, there is a real value of energy and, and uh making it through life and having your ability to, to coast over the, the hills and stuff by having these places that are aesthetically pleasing. It's not, a, it's not a throwaway thing. In America, we can do that way too much. Just put an engineer on a bridge. We don't need an artist. In Europe, they right. have an engineer and an artist. Right, exactly. So in, for a child to especially go to a place like a hospital and to be in an institutional environment rather than somewhere that someone's put some... Uh, graphic design, interior design, thought, care, emotion into. It's just such an important thing. It's such a such a difficult thing, especially for a parent. Like now that I'm a parent for the last decade, um, you, you really see how much you have involved in your kids. I was on a shoot with uh, for Loma Linda with the friend of mine, Chet Williams, that shoots for them. And there was a probably close to nine-year-old girl who had had cancer, gone to Loma Linda, and was now good. And I couldn't even be at that shoot without starting to cry. I had to keep walking to the front yard. They were like having a party in the backyard, and there were strobes, and it was all pretend. And, but I'm sitting there looking at the mother and the daughter. I can't take it. It's too much to be around it for me, even that it's a positive story. I some i'm like very unempathetic until i'm not and then it's right. it's good luck like getting anything useful out of me so 
kudos so, to you for making those places places that can support people and give them cover. Yeah, it, it's and exactly what you said is exactly right. And that emotional uh, kind of what you're going through, even though it's you know maybe it's a set or something like that, but you, you still see the real results of the real patients going through these. That uh, that feeling is what I want all of our employees to have. Um, one of our employees, um, it, only because it, it, it makes you connect so much more as to, it's not about building this big grandiose building that you can say, hey, I did that. It's not that at all. Um, I did that actually. And that, that wasn't satisfying. That wasn't, that wasn't, mm. uh, didn't fulfill that, uh, that niche in me. But for me, uh, you know, working on a pediatrics wow. wing, this was far more fulfilling for that very reason you just described. Because yeah, I, the the fulfillment in working with uh, the celebrity is almost self-centered. Look what I did. Exactly. And with like a pediatric center, it's more so look at what they have now. More so because you're never going to get unless you just have some absurd client that's like, all right, I know this is a hospital, but just blow it out of the universe as far as like design and unique minimalism or whatever. It just doesn't happen in hospitals typically. Right. There's far too right. much going on that you get pretty regimented spaces that you get to do interior design on a lot of the time. Right. right. And to, to know that your mission is to hand that, you know, the best possible experience over to those people and to feel that you're giving that you found that that motivation, that connection, that reason why, and that's that's the thing that gets you. That that's the thing that sustains you, finding your purpose and meaning, at least within work like that. That's really interesting. And interestingly, that was the last question I had that we accidentally answered. What is the guiding principle that outlines the value added in the designed and built medical facility? So. You're familiar with Simon Sinek, right? We're kind of. I know that name, but uh, he's got he's he's got a book called uh, Why. I think it's Your Why or something. Finding Your Why or mm. whatever it is. And he goes, he he, he fills it full of great stories. Uh, he starts with the uh, Wright brothers, and these guys had two nickels rubbed together, and then you have these these all these big colonels from during the Civil War around the same time that they're also trying to develop flight, and they were funded by the government. They had tons of money, but they're all doing it for the wrong reason. They're doing it for themselves. They wanted mm -hmm. to be the first human to fly. The Wright brothers weren't doing that at all. They were doing it because of the just the the, the pure uh, science of it. And they were just, you know, two kids working in a bicycle shop trying to figure it out. And they did it. And as soon as they did it, they got all the publicity. And the guys who all these, there's a group of colonels that all got the, the funding from the U.S. government. They all just gave it up and said, yeah, forget it. It's, since we didn't get to be first, we don't care anymore. So there was no, they, they, their why was not in flight. Their why was their ego in being the first and having their name on something. And these, you know, two kids out of Ohio, you know, do it. But I mean, he's filled, this, filled the stories of, of these. And so he's worth checking out. Um, uh, one of my favorite authors, by the way, he's got a ton of books. But um, for us, yeah, our why is, is really, a, it sits at our heart as to why we do what we do. And it's, um, it's, I, I mean, it's, it's so fulfilling um, because not only we are working on these environments, but we're, remember, we're not the big house, we're, there's 12 of us. So there's, there's not, uh, we're not, we're there, we're like 
I always explain, it's like, remember the, the story about the Spanish Armada? They cut down their entire force in Spain. They built these enormous ships, and the, and the British fleet came in and sunk them all because they were teeny little boats. And the Spanish Armada couldn't maneuver fast enough. There's these big, huge, monstrous uh, ships. And uh, so I always say, look, our job is to, to partner with these um, uh, different hospitals really partner with them we're not there for i mean yes everybody has to make a living so there's that but i mean we're we're there for the partnership the long-term mm -hmm. partnership and so when a facility says hey, i've got facility directors that'll just text me and say hey is there a code based on this this and this and i'll be like yeah that's fine okay i'll just send back i mean i like being their top in their top five of who should i go to to ask a question about and because i that means i'm I'm their partner. I'm and we as a, as a whole team. I've gotten to the point where it's no longer has to be me anymore. It's now I, our whole team can can answer those questions. And so for all of us, being able to provide that information to them so that they can move forward, really makes it feel like our team includes them. So we're being we're a part of their team, but they're a part of our team as well. And so that mm -hmm. is uh, that's really the kind of the, the emphasis for right. what we do. Well, it, that's a that's an inspirational thing for me to take away from this to try and focus more on what I do uh, with directly through my profession of architectural photography, how I can use it to benefit more so directly, even through shooting architecture, that that sector that that is in need to serve that because a lot of the time what I'm doing is coming in after everything difficult is done and everything's cleaned up and pretty and I make something very expensive look even better and right. then more people get jobs and and that is extremely valuable but so is uh, you know making big houses for really famous people P people got to put those houses together people got to make mm -hmm. the paintings that go in there people got to people got to people got to but for some reason in the relationship and in the process of doing one feels like a somewhat hollow venture somewhat and the other feels like a boat carrying relief more so you know and right i don't want to be out there constantly just taking a ride in a boat for fun i'd like to be able to use my boat to deliver things to other people in need at some point and i've found ways to do that and we've done projects like that but they're usually um not things that that make money so i got to figure out how to how to do that well but we did a facility i don't know how much more time we have left but we did a facility uh so the daughters of charity there uh they had built this uh, hospital in morgan hill which is south like south of santa clara county south mm -hmm. silicon valley they built this facility about 150,000 square feet it was a hospital and it operated as a hospital for maybe 15 years I don't think they could afford it anymore. I don't know why they stopped working it, but the result is since 2000, it's been empty. So when uh, Santa Clara County uh, hired us to go and take a look at several of their hospitals, one of them was this hospital. They said, hey, it's no longer a hospital. It's been decommissioned. In fact, it was, it looked, it was, uh, it was broken glass. It had mold. It had rotting walls and dead animals and graffiti and so they said it was set on 32 acres on really beautiful prime uh, real estate in morgan hill which is a nice community in silicon valley so they said what do you think we should do with this thing we were in hazmat suits all zipped up and gloves and everything had an inch of mold on it it was just really really nasty 
Um, I said, okay, look, if you build in a hospital, you're gonna spend all your money on the seismic upgrades because that's the hospital requirement. But if you build it as a skilled nursing facility or a clinic, now you can serve the community. You don't have all those regulations. Nobody's spending 24 hours here. Now you're able to provide all kinds of outpatient surgical centers, diagnostics, uh, all, there's, a, there's oncology. There's, there's so many different things that you could do as a treatment center for this community. And there was no, there was no healthcare center in that community. So um, that was my advice to them. And then that was March of 2020. And then COVID hit, obviously. And the whole, all of the energy in the country, and certainly with this, with this client said, let's turn this into a COVID uh, recovery site. So we, that's what we did. And we were on Zoom calls almost mm -hmm. daily for about a year. And we said, okay, what about this? What about this? What about this? And we had, remember contractors, everybody's afraid the world was really upside down and we were really afraid, can we even go to a job site? Are we, are people even able to, do we have to work with masks on around each other? So it was uh, uh, engineers and nobody gave, so we used to, my experience in, in my own personal practice was always going driving to a job site. Now suddenly everything was Zoom. And, you know, actually Zoom taught us and COVID taught us something we can, we can work promote. And that was actually, we were very successful at it. Um, we ripped all the, all the surfaces out. We repaired everything that was leaking. We brought in all brand new surfaces. It looks today, it looks like a brand new hospital because the bones are still there as a hospital. Only we're going to use it as a clinic and as a behavioral health center and, and other services. And so that would be speaking of how you transition your photography into something that can migrate into informing other facilities. Hey, look, this isn't just a one, one and done shoot. This is actually something that you can take away because there's lessons learned out of this. And the, the biggest one was, uh, we did, uh, we did decals on the walls and the same thing I described that we did for, uh, I think it was city, but we, we'd done all the colored, you know, so yeah, it, it, in other words, you walk into this space, we used all natural uh, type of products, not nothing white. And we used, um, uh, it, be, it became an environment that actually, you imagine your, your, your son breaks his ankle playing soccer, you gotta run him to an urgent care, you don't wanna take him to the hospital, you can go there, you can have an x-ray, there's a pharmacy there, and all of these services are there. And uh, I'd love you to see it. If you're in California and uh, let me know, I'll definitely meet you there. And we could, I can show you, give you a tour of the space. It, uh, yeah. It, well, uh, it will probably be coming through in early mid January. Okay. <laughs> we yeah. we go through Fresno to visit my grandmother, and then we go up to Sonora to see some friends, and then we usually go out uh, around to Monterey and then down to Ventura. Mm -hmm. So it's it's so Morgan Hill is kind of on the path of what you just described, and uh, it has so many opportunities. It's very photogenic building and so you could inside and out i mean it, it looks as beautiful inside and out. and you could take those photographs and you could use those as hey look the, here's what this design team did that helped make it less institutional that made it feel like you don't need to read your signs you can just follow the color decals and it'll take you to the x-ray room right. um that sort of thing so there's there's ways that you can uh uh definitely use some of the stuff that uh, certainly projects that we've worked on that you could use those and say, Hey, look, I can, I can actually share this with other uh, facilities and other, you know, other clients. Right. Yes. right. Well, we're going to need to stay in touch then. <laughs> Absolutely. First of many. <laughs>
Cool. Well, I, I am going to have, since I am on the East Coast, I'm going to have to go home and uh, get to dinner before I get in too much trouble. <laughs> okay, good. Sounds good. But uh, Jess, it's been really uh, inspirational uh, to talk with you today to, uh, to, to see the joining of um, a heart with abilities, I guess I would call it, uh, finding something that's maybe not as glitzy on the surface, but brought far more fulfillment and to see someone respond to that as a as an example is inspiring so thank you for that thank you for doing that with your business and Absolutely. thank you for your time uh speaking with us today excellent i enjoyed it all right and where can right. people find more about your firm and yourself uh so I, we had just updated our website i don't know if you what, what version you looked at hopefully it was the i looked one. on I my phone okay um, that was in the last week that would be a given design group, G-I-V-E-N designgroup.com. And uh, that would take us, take you to the website. There's all kinds of uh, contact information. If you wanted to learn more about us or reach any of us, any of our team members, that's, uh, that's all there. Well, I appreciate your, um, your encapsulation in, through this conversation, the encapsulation of your company's vision and mission statement. That's, that's uh, good to see. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for talking to us today. Absolutely. Thanks a lot.